Let me paint a scene for you. Imagine you are standing on an elevated spot in a rugged mountain range, looking down into a valley with the sun rising in the distance above the peaks. Also in the distance, you see a large lake formed by a dam built along a powerful river. That water is then sent through canals where it irrigates a number of fields and orchards, each growing heartily under the pleasant sun. There are cattle, or at least a cow, grazing nearby. On the flank of one of the mountains, you can see a large structure, a quartz mill, if you can believe it. But what catches your eye is what is standing right in front of you, with the tools of his trade all around him, a grizzled figure in rumpled clothes. You recognize him instantly, from all these context clues and the cavity in the rock behind him, as a prospector searching for riches in the earth. Well, can you see it? What if I told you that, if you are a native or have been in Arizona for some time, there is a good chance that you have seen this exact scene before? Where, you ask? Well, let me tell you. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 48, Ditat Deus. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you are doing well and didn't miss me too terribly over my little break. But the good news is I'm back now and it's time to finally, yes, finally, leave 1863 in the rearview mirror. I'm as surprised as anyone that it took nearly 10 episodes just to get to this point from the start of the Civil War, but in my defense, there was just so much to talk about. And I also haven't heard that many complaints. But for today, I want to circle back to where we left the newly appointed civilian government. And I promise this will eventually lead into that scene I described in the intro. You might remember that at the end of episode 44, we had Governor Goodwin and his party arriving in the Chino Valley in the winter of 1864. State historian Marshall Trimble says that the party arrived on January 22nd, and a few weeks later, in February, the site for Fort Whipple, the military center and temporary capital, was selected. I will point out that miners had been in the area for some time, and the first true military presence had arrived in the late fall of 1863. One soldier recounted that he had numbered up to 800 miners and others in the Chino Valley before eventually giving up trying to count people. Now, at this point, Governor John N. Goodwin went on something of a tour of the new territory, traveling through April and May to see the Verde and Salt River Valleys, take in Fort Yuma, and finally see Tucson. Tucson, as you might recall, was the only real city in the entire territory, but was completely out of the running as the territorial capital due to its reputation as a hotbed of Southern sympathy. But while it had been sidelined as a potential capital, at least for the moment, Tucson did have the honor of becoming Arizona's first officially declared municipality. 
On May 11th, Goodwin issued a proclamation declaring that Tucson was now incorporated and appointed as mayor none other than William S. Aury, who has cropped up in our story a couple times now. He was a longtime resident of Tucson and had actually ridden out to Apache Pass at the end of the Bascom Affair and had scouted during the resulting war with Cochise and the Chiricahua Apache. But his appointment is a bit remarkable, to me at least, because Aury's brother, Granville, had actually been sent to the Confederate Congress and was even now fighting in the Confederate Army. Though everyone was concerned about rebel sympathies in Tucson, William Aury must have assuaged Goodwin's fears to the point that the governor actually felt comfortable entrusting the city to him. In his proclamation, Goodwin said, quote, Every attempt made to establish government and law will receive my approval and support. I enjoin all good citizens to conform to all regulations and ordinances made by said officers within the scope of their powers, and to sustain them in establishing law and order. End quote. So, congratulations, Tucson, on being the first official American city in Arizona. All it took was nearly a century of being the only Mexican city in the Pimaria Alta, and for that matter, the only Mexican city left standing. Tucson's promotion to being an incorporated municipality came on the hills of it also being designated the seat of a territorial court. Before leaving on his tour on April 9th, Goodwin had actually divided the state into judicial districts, each overseen by a member of the Territorial Supreme Court. The first district, overseen by Judge William T. Howe, who we will have cause to deal with shortly, consisted of all of Arizona south of the Gila River and east of a line drawn at the 114th meridian. Now, imagine a north-south line running on the east side of Kingman Down, past Brenda, right where US-60 hits Interstate 10, and then bisecting Interstate 8 west of Tacna. Anything west of that line formed the second district, so for Yuma, La Paz, and other places, while anything north of the Gila and east of that line made up the third judicial district. While interesting, Luckily, we won't have to deal with these odd dividers for long. While Goodwin was making his tour of Arizona, the United States Marshal, Milton B. Duffield, was off on his own travels through the new territory, but for the purpose of taking a complete census of the population. If you think back to episode 43, during the congressional debate over the Organic Act of Arizona, supporters had claimed there was a white population of some 6,500 souls, with 4,000 peaceful Amerindians. Opponents of the bill had doubted these numbers, and made the pretty accurate claim that most of the population was really Hispanic and not white, per se. Though true, the population was heavily Hispanic, Opponents were falling back on good old-fashioned Northern European racism to argue that they shouldn't bring all of those people into the prim and proper U.S. Duffield's census, taken with the aid of a small army of assistants and actual soldiers, is pretty detailed and managed to catalog just about every spot where someone had a homestead. In the end, he found somewhere between 4,100 and 4,600 people, Sorry, different sources are giving me different total tallies. 
but we learn that Tucson at this time had a population of a little more than 1,500, quite the largest place in the entire territory, while the Maori mine in Patagonia had just under 250 people, and the boomtown of La Paz was still sitting at just above 350. One interesting bit of information gathered from Duffield's work is that we learned that the richest man in the entire territory was Mark Aldridge of Tucson, who listed his occupation as farmer and had a total fortune of $52,000, which, adjusting for inflation, would make him just shy of being a millionaire today. Charles T. Hayden is also found on this census, with assets totaling a respectable $20,000, which, if I'm calculating it correctly, would be a little more than $336,000 in 2021 dollars. But my absolute favorite bit is that, on the total opposite end of the spectrum, Duffield listed the total net worth of Thomas J. Goodman as a mere 25 cents. I hope you don't mind, but I didn't feel like doing the inflation calculation to see exactly how poor Mr. Goodman would be by today's standards. This census also clearly showed that most of the population was divided between three centers, the Chino Valley slash Hacienda River area where hundreds were flocking with dollar signs in their eyes, the lower Colorado crossing where Fort Yuma and Arizona City were located, and of course the Santa Cruz River Valley with Tucson and Tubac. We also find the population had come from nearly every state in the Union and a collection of different countries, though obviously Mexico was by far the most prevalent one. Historian Howard R. Lamar also notes that this put the new government in the awkward position of realizing that the only Anglo-Americans in the territory were mainly from the southern states and were Democrats, if not outright secessionists. Which once again leads me around to wondering how exactly William S. Owry was able to earn Goodwin's trust to become mayor. The census also highlights the other major elephant in the room. The natives. While there were less than 5,000 U.S. and Mexican citizens divided into three population centers, there were more than 30,000 Amerindians of all different tribes, allegiances, and levels of hostility everywhere else. As we have seen at length, the Quechans, the Odom, and other tribes along the Gila were friendly enough and provided a lot of material support. But elsewhere, you had the various Apache bands, the Navajo, Yavapai, Mojave, and other tribes that weren't that willing to let the Americans have free reign. I hope you won't count this as a spoiler if I say they are going to be an issue down the road. But now that someone had actually counted the number of people living in Arizona, some important things could get settled, like the calling for representative elections. Once safely back in the territorial capital, Goodwin proclaimed on May 26 that free and open elections would be held on July 18th to get the territory's legislative branch up and going. We'll get to that first legislature in another episode, but just a few days after issuing that proclamation, Goodwin participated in another momentous occasion, the moment that Prescott officially became Prescott. The governor had selected a site on the west side of Granite Creek, south of Fort Whipple, for the new civilian territorial capital. 
On May 30th, 1864, the locals were called to a meeting in a log cabin slash store, consequently where the judge who oversaw the 3rd Judicial District held court, which was dubbed Fort Misery. Fort Misery is said to be the first building erected inside of Prescott proper and acted at times as something of a community center and church. According to Trimble, for a while it was run as a boarding house by a woman named Caroline Ramos, or Virgin Mary, as she was nicknamed because of her tender care for those who were sick and injured. For years, it would also be the base of operations for Judge Howell, who, once again, we'll get to a little bit later. Just for the record, there are a few different places that the name is said to have come from. One source says that it was where Howell dispensed justice, or Misery, as those on the receiving end of his judgments liked to call it. It's also said to have been derived from the original owner's dismal cooking abilities. Trimble does add that when Ramos was running her boarding house, the menu was pretty limited to roasted venison, chilies, coffee, bread, and goat's milk, no matter which meal you were eating. But back to the May 30th meeting. During this gathering, various names were bandied about for the new town, with some of the contenders being Goodwin, and I'm sure the governor was very flattered by this, Audubon, Gimletville, and Ozatlan. That last one was due to the mistaken belief that the area had once been part of the Aztec Empire, something very common during this period. That's also the reason you can visit Montezuma's castle in the Verde Valley, which in reality has nothing at all to do with Montezuma. The suggested names were good, but Territorial Secretary Richard C. McCormick just so happened to have with him a copy of A History of Mexico written by noted authority on the subject, William Hickling Prescott. So, once again, perhaps due to a mistaken belief in the area's Aztec roots, he suggested the community be named after the historian. Everyone seemed to think this sounded pretty good and a properly august name for their little boomtown, so the historian became the official eponym of Arizona's capital. I had a history teacher in college once tell me that only historians actually remember and honor other historians, so consider this to be an exception to the rule. But now it's time to talk about the elephant in the room. Trimble notes that while the historian's name was Prescott, those in Arizona soon started pronouncing the town's name as Prescott. So, for all of my out-of-state listeners out there, if you ever visit, remember to say Prescott, not Prescott. Otherwise, everyone will know that you are not from around these parts. The actual town site for Prescott seems to have been claimed by a miner named Van Smith by virtue of basically the equivalent of squatter's rights, but he graciously donated the land to the new community. A gentleman by the name of Robert Groom surveyed the new town, with Smith, Groom, and another gentleman named Hezekiah Brooks chosen as commissioners to lay out the community. And just because I love these kind of details, Trimble reports that Groom actually used a minor skillet as a transit while surveying. The initial street names reflect a mixture of American and Mexican influences, as they carry names such as Coronado, Alarcón, Montezuma, Aubrey, LaRue, and Walker. 
Some of those names sound very familiar now, don't they? The trio were also in charge of auctioning off lots in accordance with a law passed by Congress in the spring of the previous year. The first sale was on June 4, 1864, with 73 lots fetching a total of nearly $4,000, well above the appraised value of $910. The first lot actually went to someone we already met, as a cushy corner lot was sold to J. Goldwater and Brother for a new store at the price of $175. A month later, 232 lots had been sold. McCormick, the territorial secretary, paid the highest price for a lot at $245. Now this lot became home to the Arizona Miner, which printed on a press McCormick had brought with him from back east. Though the newspaper had been turning out issues on a semi-regular basis since March, by June 22nd, the paper was now turning out regular editions. Fair bit of warning for my listeners, because I am a recovering newspaper man, be prepared for me to point out every time a notable newspaper starts printing from here on out. Also, if I haven't mentioned it before, I have a vague notion to one day do an entire episode looking at the important newspapers that went into the history of the state. As part of its run in June 1864, the Arizona miner advertised bids going out for the governor's mansion, the first public building to go up in the new community. Though mansion might be a very gracious term for the structure if you are applying modern standards. But it was a two-story, 11-room building built out of local logs. The cost was kind of astronomical for the times, with nails costing a whopping $1.75 per pound. The builders even went into some $1,500 worth of debt and only got the building to the point where it didn't even have a real roof. As one state history puts it, thanks to a lack of fiscal oversight on the territorial treasury, another $6,000 was easily earmarked to finish the building. And just for fun, and because this is the 1860s, the crews building it had to be vigilant of Amerindian raids. In fact, a band of local natives was actually killed within 200 yards of the building during one such raid. Once finished, the mansion would serve Governor Goodwin his successor, and a Supreme Court judge before becoming the permanent residence of Henry W. Fleury. Fleury, who was a member of Goodwin's private staff, moved into the mansion in 1864, and after the capital was temporarily moved to Tucson in 1867, just kept living there. And he would live there, with the permission of its various owners, until his death in 1896. The building would then pass through a few private hands, including the Congregational Church of Prescott, before the state legislature in 1917 stepped in and bought the historic building for $7,000. Thanks to history buff and poet Charlotte Hall, who we will definitely need to talk about at some point, the old log mansion was restored. And that means, for all of us today, we can actually go to the Charlotte Hall Museum and see the original governor's mansion for ourselves, along with various household accoutrements from the times. And since I'm already plugging the museum, I guess I should also mention that one of the buildings on its campus is also Fort Misery. 
you can see now why I mentioned it last week as one of the must-see places for Arizona history buffs to go. Just please remember to practice saying Prescott before you get there. One building that you can't see today is another that was built over the summer of 1864, the original log cabin where the territorial legislature met. Built on Gurley Street, this log cabin was not much to look at. When the first legislature met there in September, the two-room building had no floor, just a spot where the wild grass had been cleared away. According to one account, it had been thrown together in such haste that the logs had only been roughly faced with an axe and were still oozing pitch. And the logs hadn't been chinked either, meaning the wind could easily blow through the building, which also had no glass windows, just holes in the side of the building and shutters. At one point during the first session, a combination of a not-yet-ready building and an early winter storm drove the legislature from the building altogether. They had to meet in the governor's mansion until the log cabin was finished and made safe from the elements. After Tucson briefly captured the territorial capital, this log building would house a store, post office, and brewery before finally being destroyed by a fire in 1900. We are going to get all into this first territorial legislature in an upcoming episode, but when we do, I just want you to have the mental image of them making some of their first decisions while standing on a dirt floor with a cold wind blowing into the room. Boomtowns being what they are, we get some fun side anecdotes from early state historian James H. McClintock about early life in Prescott. For example, he relates that a man named George Bernard claims to have been the territory's first postmaster, but his office in Prescott was literally under a tree, with mail being delivered by a contractor via La Paz. The first actual family to move to the area is said to have been Joseph L., his wife and daughters, who moved to the new community back in early 1864. One of his daughters, Mary, would get married in November of that year, with Governor Goodwin officiating. To Mrs. L. is given credit for bringing the first chickens, cats, and honeybees to town. And in case you are wondering, the chickens were the black Spanish variety, and Mrs. L. sold kittens to miners for an ounce of gold dust each. In January 1865, a little girl named Molly Simmons was born in Prescott, and is possibly the first child of Anglo-American extraction to be born in the community. McClintock also relates that a woman named Fanny B. Stevens was the first credentialed schoolteacher in northern Arizona, and that she taught in Prescott in 1864, having a grand total of six pupils and instructing them in a primitive log cabin on South Granite Street. Though I feel I should point out that pretty much all the log cabins at this point were primitive, so it's not that much of a descriptor. McClintock also makes sure to point out that her teaching career was brief because, quote, women were few and wives were in demand in those days, end quote. He also makes an interesting note about Prescott, saying as almost a point of pride that it was a distinctly American town from its inception. That is to say that it did not have a substantial Mexican population, unlike Tucson, Fort Yuma, or La Paz, 
and that the architecture was not the Spanish-Moorish type to be found further south. This may seem like a small thing, but you are going to find as we go forward that for a lot of people at this time, having a community that was non-Mexican was a great accomplishment. And this is but a small taste of the kind of prejudice that will lead to things such as the Bisbee deportation down the road. But I want to wrap up today talking about a fascinating little eddy of history from this time period, the evolution of the Great Seal of the Territory of Arizona. A seal, as you may know, is used to identify documents and other items as authentic. In state law today, the Arizona Secretary of State is the keeper of the state's seal, tasked with preserving it and its reputation. But when Abraham Lincoln organized the territory of Arizona in 1863, everyone was starting from scratch. So where did our great seal come from? For that, we have to turn once again to Richard C. McCormick, territorial secretary, future governor, businessman, and journalist. Knowing that any government needed to have a great seal for its documents, McCormick actually designed one before coming west in 1863 with the other territorial officials. This he did even though technically Congress had not granted him any actual authority to do so. His original conception showed a bearded miner standing in front of a short-handled shovel, pick, and wheelbarrow with mountains in the background. Around the edges were the words, Seal of the Territory of Arizona, with 1863 at the bottom. To this, he also added the Latin words, Ditat Deus, or God in Riches. And I will just say that that inscription makes a lot more sense when you consider that the territorial government was literally setting up shop in the middle of a gold field. Now, in response to some criticism, McCormick would rework the seal, removing the pickaxe and the wheelbarrow and replacing the short-handled spade with a long-handled shovel. The mountains were also made less bland, with one perhaps being modeled after Thumb Butte, a landmark in the greater Prescott area. Now, the fun part about this seal is that more than a few people noticed that it bore a striking resemblance to the label of a popular brand of baking powder. And I am not making that up. The similarity was so much that you'll sometimes find it written that McCormick was accused of straight-up plagiarizing this label. Whether he had or hadn't, the nickname the Baking Powder Seal stuck, and for the rest of the time it was in use, it would be referred to like that. To hopefully get an appropriate seal for the state that didn't look like it had been plagiarized from a grocery store item, the first territorial legislature in November 1864 passed an act calling for the creation of an official territorial seal. Crucially, though, they stipulated that until such a time as the new seal could be produced, McCormick could continue using the baking powder seal. What they did not know was that it would literally be years before a new seal would be proposed. Because he personally liked his design, baking powder copy or not, McCormick kept using this seal through 1865, when he became governor. His successor to the office of territorial secretary would also keep using it through 1868. And when the capital moved down to Tucson, the next few territorial secretaries kind of gave up having a seal at all. 
Some use simply the letters LS for legal seal on important documents. Another just put those same letters in brackets. Still another just had a circle with the word seal inside. It wasn't until 1879 that the baking powder seal was officially scrapped and an official one adopted. Though you can still see a remnant of the baking powder seal in the very similar design for the Great Seal of Gila County. Now, the new seal adopted by the legislature showed a buck standing with a mountain in the background, pine trees on one side, and a large columnar cactus on the other. This design would be tinkered with in the late 1800s and in 1905, eventually reversing the position of the pine trees and cactus and changing which way the deer was facing. This, then, was the last territorial seal before statehood. An updated version of this, with better artwork, can still be seen on the sale of the Arizona Corporation Commission. In 1910, the subject of a seal for the state of Arizona was part of the ongoing constitutional debate. A small committee gathered and proposed a redesign to the seal, which would have brought back the miner, this time standing in front of a dammed river with large irrigated fields and cattle grazing in the background. Or, in other words, the scene I described at the very beginning of this episode. However, no less a figure than Morris Goldwater vehemently opposed changing the seal, saying, quote, Any man who has lived in this territory under the present seal as long as I have can continue to live with it until he dies without hurting himself. End quote. Still, even that opposition was not enough to kill the idea of a redesign, based on the sketch of Phoenix newspaper artist E. E. Motter. By the way, Motter was said to have based the depiction of the miner with his pickaxe and long-handled shovel off of an 1880 photo of prospector George Warren, taken in Bisbee. Despite last-minute attempts by Goldwater and others to derail the proceedings, the Motter seal was approved by the convention on December 9, 1910. Despite the Motter seal being settled on, it would also go through several different iterations at different times and under different administrations. In the mid-2000s, it was even shown that various details from this seal had actually been lost over time, possibly due to excessive photocopying and low-resolution scans. Most of these were minor details, including the fact that the G in Great Seal of the State of Arizona started looking more like a C. Today, we have black and white and color versions of this seal with an official color palette worked out. And I have to think that McCormick would be proud that nearly 160 years later, his basic design of a miner, pickaxe and shovel nearby, is still represented standing proudly next to the words Ditat Deus, God in riches. Though I worry now that anytime one of us looks at the great seal of the state of Arizona, the only thing we are going to be thinking about is baking powder. Speaking of, if you have ever looked at the great seal of the state of Arizona, then you have viewed the scene I described at the very beginning. But with the great seal settled on, and with Prescott now set up and well on its way, we are going to turn our attention next week back to military matters and try to round out the Civil War years in Arizona. We'll look at soldiering in Arizona during this time, 
the final mustering out of the California Column and the end of General Carleton's tenure as military commander. Also, the last desperate attempts of the Confederacy to try and win back their dream of claiming the Southwest as their own. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.